following is a sermon preached at Grace Church of Orange, California. Join us now as we go verse by verse through God's inspired, inerrant, infallible Word. Everybody loves a great love story, don't they? Ruth is a love story. but It might not be the kind of love story you were expecting or anticipating. It's not so much romance as it is an expression of deep covenantal commitment. Ruth is a story of God's love for his people because we love because he first loved us. And, and Ruth shows a picture, and so does Christmas, of God working in such a way that his people rejoice in his covenant love, he rejoice in his redeeming love as they remember his faithfulness. That's what we're doing today, together today is at Christmas. And even as we look at the Old Testament book of Ruth, It shows the love of God in a redeeming way. It shows the love of God for the lost and the lonely. Uh, Amy Carmichael put it this way, the love of God, what it is, none but his loved ones know. And Ruth and Christmas show us clearly the love of God. As we've been going through Ruth, we know that Ruth is a bridge. It's a bridge through the washed out period of the judges, and it led to the tangled mess of the kings. Game of Thrones that was the period of the monarchs was highlighted by the bumpy tenure of David. It was all angling to God's redemption of Israel and the nations. We've seen Ruth in three acts so far. Really, every chapter is a different act with several scenes. In in Act chapter, in Act One, chapter one, it introduced us to God's extraordinary kindness in our extreme need. In Act 2, chapter 2, it shows God providentially orchestrating Ruth's protection and Ruth's provision through Boaz. And then last week in Act 3, chapter 3, we see these three scenes. Uh, Naomi hatches a, a daring and dangerous plan. Ruth proposes, uh, boldly proposes marriage to Boaz. And then we see Boaz promising redemption. Boaz um, saying, yes, no matter what, you're going to be taken care of, Ruth. Now, we know the story, and we can read the story, but in the moment, they did not know the rest of the story, and so the characters are left hanging in suspense. Basically, who's going to marry Ruth? So now we get to see the rest of the story in Act 4, Chapter 4, Unto Us a Child is Born. And it's a picture of redemption. Boaz's redemption of Ruth foreshadowing Christ's redemption of his people. It is a picture of rejoicing as, as they rejoice in the marriage of Boaz and Ruth and also the child Obed that is born. But it's also a picture of remembering. As we look at David's family tree and remembering God's faithfulness. And really we remember looking backwards but also looking forwards because we know that God keeps all his promises. This really is a picture of God's people rejoicing in his redeeming love as they remember his faithfulness. First in this, in this uh, act four is the scene that appears first is in the first 12 verses, and it's a scene of redemption. Boaz was the kinsman redeemer, and in in Ruth, it's a huge theme, this idea of redemption. Words dealing with redemption occur more than 20 times in Ruth. And Boaz has promised Ruth that someone would redeem her. Now, in the big biblical picture, you need to keep this in mind. God has been orchestrating events all the way through uh, to continue his redemption plan, not only for Israel, but for the nations. But in Ruth's story, the micro details are all coming together. Chapter 3 left several things unresolved. Obviously, Naomi did not have an heir to the land, and this is an important issue in a family back then. Uh, No one to carry on the family name. Obviously, there was the which of the two candidates is Ruth uh, going to have as her husband. That's kind of a crazy place to to stop. It's like, well, I'm going to marry Boaz or someone else that will remain unnamed, kind of wild. And so what you see here is a complicated legal process unfolding. 
It's not without its surprise. Boaz brings in this introduction of Elimelech's field. There's another relative. He agrees to buy the field. But then Boaz shrewdly redeems the land and the lady. And so that's where we're going today. And we're in the realm of inheritance. We're in the realm of caring for widows. We're in the realm of providing heirs for childless widows. What you notice right away in chapter 4 is Boaz gets right to work. Gets up early in the morning, goes to the town gate. It's where all the uh, business was was going to be taking place. and This was like the courthouse and the business center of the city, all in one. And he goes and sits down at the gate early in the morning, a busy time when transactions would be happening. And a man walks by. Happens to be the kinsman redeemer that's closer than Boaz. And so he basically says, hey friend, why don't you come and sit with me? I need to talk to you about something. But it's very interesting in Ruth, he doesn't use his name as the narrative goes. And in the Hebrew, there's two rhyming words, a Polani Almani. He basically says, hey, uh, hey you. Uh, Polani Almani literally is Mr. So-and-so. Hey, Mr. So-and-so, come sit down and talk to me for a few minutes. It's, it's kind of a wild thing to do. He doesn't call, use his name Well, they sit down and and they start to talk. And you kind of wonder, why is this guy not getting named? And I think I know. I think uh, the one who would refuse to raise up uh, a name over the inheritance of a dead man deserves no name in the story. So he's just Mr. So-and-so, Polani Almani. And Boaz then gathers around them a legal quorum for the agreement that's going to be made. And he tells the man, Naomi is selling her land. And that was a normal thing to do if you don't have money to live and You don't have an heir to carry on the property. And so Boaz brings the situation to Mr. So-and-so. And he does it in the presence of 10 witnesses. This is key. Right away, the man says, I'll redeem the land. I will buy the land. But then Boaz gives some more detail. He says, well, uh, the redemption is not only of the land, but of the lady Ruth. Right away, the guy says, can't do it, no deal, not going to do it. And um, he says, it's going to affect my own family. Why is this such a big deal? Well, uh, to include a person in the transaction uh, with the possibility of future children on the line is going to complicate his existing inheritance with his own family. So any child born to Ruth and Boaz would lay claim to Elimelech's land. And so, he must have had other heirs, he must have had at least one heir, uh, and their portions would have been divided smaller if he redeemed the land. And I think all of us can understand, we all have probably known of situations in in families where uh, family members get really weird about inheritance, what they're going to get, and what their parents wanted, and what their parents said, and people get their feelings hurt, and things like that. Well, here, here... The door now swings wide open for Boaz to redeem the land and Ruth. So he's going to get to marry Ruth. Now, this is the only way that Ruth could become a full-fledged member of the community of Israel. Uh, This initial commitment we see back in chapter 1, that she commits to Yahweh and to his people, now it's going to be fully rewarded as it was prayed for in chapter 2. She is going to become David's legitimate ancestor. Now you notice Boaz's purpose in marrying Ruth. Look at verse 5. His reason is very uh, altruistic. He says, I want to perpetuate the name of the dead in his inheritance. The first child born to Boaz and Ruth would own Elimelech's field and and then by way of representation would, would literally keep Elimelech and his dead sons alive in association with the land. This was very important in Israel. The land was very important. The promises made to God's people, very important that land was kept in the family. And here's the great part. You've got Naomi's poor family that was dangling by a spiderweb, you know, uh, thin thread about to be extinguished on, on the verge of extinction. Now the family's going to survive. This is good news. 
And the witnesses all agree. They, they hear the deal, they say yes to it. And they bring a custom in that was used to ratify the freedom that Boaz now has to marry Ruth and to redeem the land. And it's a weird one. To 2019 American ears, it's a weird custom. So the guy basically, the, the kinsman redeemer, the closer one, that says no, he takes off his shoe, literally his sandal, and he hands it to Boaz. He gives it to him. The guy's going to walk around with one sandal on because he could go into the you know, into the plaza and get another one. I don't know. They probably weren't rainbows. You know, they weren't that expensive. I don't know. All I know is he takes off his sandal and hands it to Boaz. What's the significance of that? The significance is this. The sandal is the symbol of you walking into your land and taking possession of it. So removing the sandal and handing it to someone else is basically you're saying, I'm giving you the right to inherit the land I'm giving it to you. And so this man gives the right to inherit the land to Boaz. All the witnesses give a thumbs up. And then, and I love, I love Boaz. He, he could be a great you know, lawyer he, with, with legal precision, like scalpel-like precision. He starts laying out terms. And he says, now, I want to be clear. Uh, it's Ruth the Moabite that I'm going to marry. It's Ruth the Moabite, the widow of Malon. He's making it very clear who is involved. And it's very interesting who Ruth is at this point. At this point, Ruth is the legal representative, the substitute widow, if you will, of Naomi. Naomi is too old to bear children, and so Ruth is her legal substitute. And what you see here in, in Ruth is kind of some thematic elements getting uh, put together, some loose ends getting tied up. Boaz grants Ruth's earlier request uh, to marry her. He provides protection and security for her. And then there's this reward, really, uh, for Ruth that was prayed for by Naomi in chapter 1 and by Boaz in chapter 2. They had both prayed that God would reward Ruth for her, her worthy actions. We'll get to that later, but let's talk about redemption. Redemption is the key here. Redemption is a Hebrew-specific word. And Ruth doesn't take place without God's word. Ruth doesn't take place without the law in Leviticus 25, uh, telling how to do leveret marriage, telling how to do redemption. Uh, in the Old Testament, it's all laid out. And here's how it went. God was so intent on fulfilling the redemptive line, fulfilling his purposes through the Messiah, that he set up the system that would be in place when Ruth comes onto the scene to fulfill his promises to his people. God is orchestrating all of human history, even down to the smallest detail. And today you are probably worried about some details in your life. You're probably maybe fearful or anxious or wondering, how is this going to turn out? You might even be thinking, you know, God isn't concerned with my details. I don't even know if I can bring them up to him. And I hope that Ruth is showing you here that God is concerned with the details of your life and he is concerned with you pouring out your heart to him. Whatever it is that you think, oh no, I don't think God would be interested in this detail, pour it out to him in prayer. Bring it up to him. He knows it anyway. He knows what you're thinking about. He knows what you're worried about. He knows what's got you all tied up in knots inside. God is orchestrating all of human history, even down to the smallest detail. The ten elders and then the people around are witnesses to this transaction, and they pray for Ruth. I love it. They pray for Ruth. They pray that God would give her the ability to have children. It's a gift from God to be able to have children. And they pray for God to bless Boaz and Ruth. If you're praying today for God to bless your friends, you're doing a good thing. Keep praying for God to bless people. They compare Ruth to Israel's founding mothers, Rachel and Leah, and even to Judah's tribal mother, Tamar. They say, may, may Ruth be like Rachel and Leah from whom Jacob's 12 sons and the tribes came from. They pray for Boaz. They're like, 
may God give him success in Bethlehem. May his house, may his descendants be like Perez born to Judah by Tamar. That throws us into Genesis chapter 38. And you wonder, why did that just get brought up? I remember when I was a kid, I would read in the Bible, in the Old Testament in Genesis, and I would read about Joseph and his brothers. I loved the story of Joseph and his brothers, but I would always get to chapter 38 and skip it. Just leapfrog it, because I'm like, this has nothing to do with the story. I don't know why it's there. And there's some pretty bad stuff that happens in Genesis 38. And so you can read it later and you can review it. But I'm just telling you, I'm, I remember thinking, why is it even there? It's a very good reason. See, Judah was the one that had the idea to, to sell his brother into slavery, his brother Joseph into slavery. And then the events of Genesis 38 happened in his life. And he made some bad decisions. You could call that chapter Judah behaving badly. Wickedly even. Immorally even. But then what you see is after that event, his heart changes. He gets some sort of transformation in his life where he realizes, I was wrong. And I need to do what's right in God's sight. In fact, it got to the point where when when Joseph was asking for one of the brothers to stay in Egypt, Judah, Judah is the one who said, I'll, I'll put myself in my brother's place. And what we find out here is that may his descendants be like Perez, born to Judah by Tamar. They're praying and they're saying, you know what? It was God's will that Perez is in the genealogy leading to David. It fits God's plan to raise up kings in Abraham's line, Genesis 17, and in Judah's line, Genesis 49. Because as Boaz's wife, Ruth, is going to now enjoy full membership in the covenant community. She's going to be a part of Israel. And the blessings here pronounced upon them confirm this truth. You know what this is telling us? This is telling us that God loves and cares for all the Ruths in history more than Boaz even cared for Ruth, and Boaz cared deeply for Ruth. It tells us that people matter in God's economy, that you matter in God's economy, that you're not just insignificant, that you're just not unnoticed, that God actually cares for you, and that God planned to redeem many people and bring them to himself, and that God welcomes foreigners who are, who are demonstrating faithfulness to him. It sounds like Jonah. And this lays the foundation of which Jesus later, later built on when he sends his followers out and he says, you take the gospel, not just to your own town, not just to those you like, but to the ends of the earth. Take the gospel all the way to all the nations. In fact, this is even telling us, remember the Exodus, taking us back into the Old Testament and saying, you know what? Remember in the Exodus how God saved and redeemed his people from, from Pharaoh, from, from an evil ruler who thought himself God, that he delivered the Israelites, that they were slaves and they were, they were viewing what God did as an act of redemption. In Exodus 6, verse 6, God promises to redeem the Israelites with an outstretched arm and great acts of judgment. You can read about all the plagues on Pharaoh in Egypt. And then, in Exodus 15, verse 13, the Israelites describe their experience and they describe themselves as people whom the Lord had redeemed. In Hebrew, this idea of the kinsman redeemer. Uh, two ways it is spoken of Goel or Gaal, and it's, it's speaking in Exodus with that word used to signify God redeeming and rescuing his people out of slavery in Egypt, where God came as a relative, and where, where God came to redeem those that were being unjustly treated. This sets the stage for the idea of redeeming those in trouble. This sets the stage for Ruth, and it sets the stage for Christ. On the largest scale, Christ is the Redeemer. Christ is the only Redeemer. Galatians 4.4 tells us that he came to redeem fallen man. He came to save sinners. 
that Christ liberates and frees from sin all those who are under the curse imposed by the law, all those who come to faith in, in the Redeemer, all those who trust the Redeemer's finished work. You look in the Psalms and you look at Psalm 49 and you see an impossibility that no sinner can redeem another sinner. The impossibility is solved in the sinless, sovereign Savior, Jesus Christ, born of the Virgin, died in the place of lost sinners. All who come to Christ, all whom he has chosen, will be redeemed by him. He is the one that delivers sinners. He is the one that gives freedom from sin. He is the one that ransoms slaves to sin. And, and it happened at immense cost. We don't know how much Boaz paid for the field. But we know how much Christ paid for our redemption. Immense cost, the price to set us free. First Peter tells us, chapter one, it tells us uh, the, the precious blood of Christ. What gets left out of so many gospel presentations? The fact that Christ shed his blood in our place, substituted himself in our place, died for our sins. The wrath that our sins deserved fell upon him. He conquered death at the cross. He rose from the dead. All who put their faith and trust in Christ are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. Paul says to the Galatians, it was for freedom that Christ set you free. Don't be subject again to a, the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to your old sins. See, our response to Christ's redemption should be worship. Our response should be obedience, repentance, faith. If you're a believer, you know that that's your life. If you're a believer, you know uh, you worship him because of his redemptive love. You, you repent, you turn from your sins, and you keep doing it as you grow on in Christ. You, you live by faith and obedience. If you're not a believer today, the Father stands ready to transfer you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved Son, as Colossians 1 tells us, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. You need to be forgiven of your sins. If you don't know Christ, your sins are on you. If you don't know Christ, you're not redeemed. The stakes are eternal. Heaven and hell is in the balance. We've been told our whole lives, uh, just believe in yourself. Just look out for yourself. Just work hard for yourself because no one else is going to look out for you. We've been told our whole lives, we've been fed a, a, a pile of lies as it comes to this. It's not a biblical idea to look out for yourself or believe in yourself. The biblical idea is you turn from your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You must turn from your sins. You must turn from yourself and trust Jesus Christ. Christ. If you're not a Christian today, you need to turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. Believe in his redeeming love at the cross because unless you come to the end of yourself, unless you admit that you are bankrupt spiritually, that you're poor in spirit, that there's nothing you can do to commend yourself to God, there's nothing you could do to earn your way to heaven, there's nothing you could do, and that you have to admit, I gotta surrender my life to Jesus. I've gotta surrender my life. Then you, if you don't do that, you're gonna remain in the domain of darkness. Your sins are on you. You're under the wrath of God. You're destined for hell. Your justly earned wages of sin is death. Get back over to Ruth. You've got Boaz redeeming Ruth to protect and provide. The gospel tells us that believers are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And you are redeemed legally. No accusation can stick. The enemy cannot come in and steal you away from Jesus. The law is satisfied in the case of a believer. There is no question of your standing. It is agreed upon. The death of the Lord Jesus satisfied the law. 
you know, we all like to get a good gift certificate, right? I love it when uh, somebody gives me a gift certificate. Uh, you know, the more the merrier. If it's a big gift certificate, you're like, wow, this is generous. This is wonderful. I can't wait to use it. I like giving gift certificates to people. We got one one time, and it was a pretty large gift certificate to a local restaurant. So we're like, well, let's go use that gift certificate. We show up at the restaurant, and it's, it's not the same owner. It's a different name. It, it, it closed and opened as something else. And so I go on inside, and I'm like, is there any chance that you would honor this gift certificate from the former owner? They're like, not a chance. Not a chance, but we'd be glad to take your cash or your card. You gift certificates, you know, the, 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 the company can go out of business, right? And you're out in the cold. I save, I got a special place. I got a special drawer. I keep all those kind of gift certificates just to remind me. Don't wait too long to use that. But you think about this. The gospel's effects in the life of a believer never expire, never change. God's not going out of business. His redemptive love never ends. It never stops. The redemption is huge. Let's move on in the story to the rejoicing. Uh, the marriage. The baby. Everybody loves it when a baby is born. Boaz marries Ruth. God answers the prayer. And then by God's grace, Ruth conceives they welcome a son, Obed. His name means one who serves. God is going to use him to serve his purposes. And, and Boaz blesses Ruth throughout the book of Ruth and reminds us of this idea of reward because what was being prayed by Naomi in chapter 1 and being prayed by Boaz in chapter 2 for Ruth is that God would reward her. Now we think of reward as, yeah, I'm going to do something so I can get uh, a benefit. Like, hopefully I do enough good things. Some of you are living like this. Uh, if I just do enough good things, God's going to let me into heaven. That doesn't work. That should be off the table. That is not even an idea you should be having. But people will say this all the time. Well, they're such a good person, right? Well, there's nobody good. Only God is good. The only good in you, if you're a Christian, is Christ. So what's the reward? What's the reward that God gives to Ruth? Her obedience has a reward. It, it doesn't contradict grace or mercy or faith because Ruth didn't earn or merit the reward she received. She trusted in Yahweh. She took refuge under his wings. Uh, she was repaid for looking to Yahweh as her fortress and protector and rock. The outcome of her faith, the outcome of all those who trust in Jesus is, is the reward of having him as your God and your king. He gives himself. Boaz's words, if you think about it, really become a reality in a very surprising way. Ruth is, is rewarded by marrying Boaz and bearing a child. Because God was working behind the scenes bring his redemptive plan into action and to continue it on, the sovereign plan of God, hidden from humans, is operating. But you think about it, all the characters in Ruth, the main characters, Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, all very commendable, all did good things. But they didn't earn God's kindness. It was all grace. And what we notice here is that, that God does not abandon his people. A son is born to Boaz and Ruth and Naomi is protected and we know that God rewards those who seek him. He gives himself. There's this rejoicing, this marriage and then a son. This, this picture of rejoicing, by the way, and near the middle there of chapter four in Ruth is like a birthday party. I'm serious, like a, a first birthday party of a baby. They're honoring the child just born to Boaz and Ruth, and, and the women of the community pronounce a blessing. Guess who they pronounce the blessing on? Naomi, the grandma. The women pray. They rejoice with Naomi. You could have called the book of Ruth the book of Naomi or the book of Boaz. It's the book of Ruth. But they thank God on behalf of Naomi. It's good to thank God for blessing your friends. If you're thanking God today for blessing your friends, you're doing a good thing. 
They credit God for the son. That's what you do when a baby's born. Praise God that a baby was born. And, and here's what they're praising God for. There's a redeemer that's going to carry on the family tree, that's going to carry on the inheritance of this family. We're not going extinct. Uh, they, they pray that the son's name will be famous among his people. Well, it did become famous. Obed's spot in the, the kingly genealogy of Israel is set. But they're putting the infinite center stage here. Now, this is not child-centered parenting. This is gospel-centered truth. Newborn baby is named, named Obed, by the people of the community. Only time in the Old Testament you see the people of the community naming the baby. You see that his name it means works and serves. He's going to serve God's purposes. But notice what else happens. Who becomes uh, the, uh, the nurturer of this child? It's Naomi. Beautiful love between Ruth and Naomi. Now Ruth is honoring her mother-in-law once again, saying, you know what? On a daily basis, you're going to be the one to have this ongoing relationship with this child in the ordinary sense of ongoing care and compassion and affection and guidance. And here's a gift of a son to care for as your own, maybe in place of your two dead sons. What a love and devotion on behalf of Ruth toward Naomi. But I want to point this out about Ruth. You know what it shows us, this scene of rejoicing? It shows us that her identity was transformed. Her identity was transformed. Uh, she's no longer in the story Ruth the Moabite. She is now Ruth the wife of Boaz. Her, her identity got changed. You know, a person who is redeemed by Jesus, has their identity changed? 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, whoever is in Christ is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. You struggle with that new identity. We all do. You take some steps forward, but then you take some steps back. Uh, you, you struggle with the transformation that God brings about. But Ruth... She didn't transform herself. She didn't work really hard and believe in herself and work to the point of exhaustion trying to be changed. She just received the new identity. There's a lot of Christians who struggle with their identity in Christ. In fact, there's a lot of Christians who will even wonder if they've really been changed by Jesus. It's, it's happened to many, many Christians and you might even have family members who question your salvation and go, I don't know, I see things in your life, I'm not sure if you're really a believer. You might even wonder, like, am I really a Christian? And you've come to faith in Christ, you're believing the gospel truth, but you, you, you wonder and you even have that fear that maybe I'm not in Christ, maybe I'm not good enough, maybe I haven't done enough. Remember the gospel? There's nothing you can do. Jesus has paid it all. And if you really wonder if you've been changed by Jesus, if you really wonder if you're a Christian, let me tell you what you should do. Open up your Bible and read what the New Testament says about believers. Go to somewhere like Colossians 3 that says that we're accepted in the beloved, that we are loved, that we are cherished, that we are forgiven. And as you're reading those words, test your heart. Is my heart rejoicing in these things? Is my heart yearning for these things? And if so, that's a good, a good sign of life that if you love what the Bible says about Christians and you desperately want it to be true about you, that's a sign of life in Christ. Because those who don't know Christ, they read that and there's no pulse. They're like, I don't want that. But if you truly want what the Bible says Christians have, and you yearn for it, and you pray for it, and you live in line with it, it's a sign that you truly have been redeemed. Because you follow Jesus, you believe in Jesus, you, you live for Jesus, not yourself. What is our number one struggle in life? Is it not living for ourselves? Isn't your struggle about you getting 
yourself into the driver's seat and messing things up? Isn't your struggle about uh, denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Christ, don't you kind of bristle against that sometimes? Isn't your struggle that you say yes to yourself too many times? 2 Corinthians 5, 14 and 50 tells us this, the love of Christ controls us. Because we've concluded this, is what believers have concluded, that one died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, that they who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. So Praise God if you want to align with that. Back to Ruth. There's a final surprise. Obed, and you see this in verse 15. Obed is the father of Jesse. And Jesse is the father of David. That little mini sliver of a genealogy there in one verse. In that one verse, the story just lightning quick fast forwards from long ago in the days of the judges to a time closer to the audience. Whoever wrote Ruth wrote it during or, or after the time of David because he's named here. So Naomi's son Obed turns out to be the grandfather of Israel's greatest human king, David. And suddenly, you don't just have a story of two struggling widows trying to make ends meet. The story now takes a, on a different dimension. Now all of a sudden you see a bright golden thread woven into the fabric of a larger story. You see the gospel truth, how God is, is serving his redemptive purposes, how an unlikely son purchases redemption, provides blessing, how, how God has been guiding the story to bless Ruth and Israel and all the nations, not just through Obed or through David, but through Jesus Christ. And so there's redemption, there's rejoicing, but there's a remembering here. You get to the final genealogy, verses 18 to 22, and you see the genealogy of David, the family tree of David, and it starts in verse 18 like this. These are the generations. That's a phrase that automatically links us back to the Genesis genealogies, all the ones that were angling towards the coming of the Messiah. And Ruth, this bridge, fills in some gaps. We need to know who's in there. And it takes us all the way to David. The genealogy is at the end. You know, Ruth was written to get to the genealogy. This is like you eating dinner to get to dessert. It's, it's written to get us to David. The last word in the book of Ruth is David. And it's, it's telling us, you remember backwards, praise God for his faithfulness, and you remember forwards in hopeful expectation of his continued faithfulness. You know what Ruth is? Ruth is a long ago reminder that God orchestrates all things after the counsel of his will. He keeps every promise. You look at the larger context of the word of God. The movement is on to the greater David. The king, the king himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, son of David, son of Abraham. This takes us to Matthew chapter 1. Go there, Matthew chapter 1. Because in Matthew 1, this genealogy continues. And in the very first verse of Matthew's gospel, we read these words. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, king, the son of Abraham, promise. It's significant. The list in Ruth goes to David. The list in Matthew continues on to Jesus, the son of David. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, illustrates God's greater kinsman redeemer. He's in the line that God marked out, the line of Judah for his coming king. Names matter. Family lines in the Bible matter. The genealogy of Jesus matters. Jesus had to be the son of David, had to be the son of Abraham. You know what, you know what this 
um, genealogy in Ruth is and the genealogy in Matthew is. It's, it's David's and Jesus' patents of nobility. Just use an old term with you that was like from the 1400s. Uh, it was the patents of nobility. It was a document proving the nobility, the power, the status of an individual. It was a long-held uh, tradition of conferring proof of power and status through the presentation of a document with a seal, even the imperial wax seal attesting to the document's validity. We have the word of God on it, the word of God that stands forever. This document is viable. This document is valid. This document is true. See, Ruth is part of David's and Jesus' patents of nobility. These, gene these genealogies of the generation leading to Jesus Christ, the Redeemer. You noticed who's in the genealogies? You, you know, you think your family's weird? Look at the people in Jesus' genealogy. Look here in Matthew chapter 1. Look at verse 3. Oh, Tamar, Canaanite mother of Perez. Let's keep going. Oh, verse 5, Rahab. Didn't just dress up like a prostitute, was one. Rescued out of Jericho, brought into the covenant community by faith. Verse 5, Ruth, for all her worthiness, she was still a Moabite, a despised foreigner in the eyes of many. You wonder if the Bible's true. You wonder if, if the canonical books, the, the books of the Old and New Testament all fit together. Matthew wouldn't have known the name of Ruth if the canonical book of Ruth hadn't existed. Oh, let's keep going. Verse 6, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. That's Bathsheba. You got Judah. Judah who took Tamar with no conscience. Tamar, mother of Perez through Judah. You've got David here, the one that arranged Uriah's death. And lest I forget, Manasseh. That's the worst of the worst in the genealogy of Jesus. Manasseh, the worst idolater of Judah's kings. In fact, his sins were so bad, it was like, well, exile is a foregone conclusion after this guy. And these are the men and women in Jesus' genealogy, they're just a mixed bag of uncleanliness, of sinfulness, of depravity. Why would the Lord Jesus, who could have chosen anyone to be descended from, choose to be in the line that he came from? Why would he choose to come from such unworthiness? And the reason why is because he is the only worthy one. No one is worthy but God. And Jesus is the friend of sinners. Matthew goes on to explain Jesus' ancestry. The angel tells Joseph, you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus himself said the, the Son of Man came to seek and save that which was lost, Luke 19.10. He came to rescue sinners, his own ancestors, and you and me. If we would bow the knee to Christ, here's Jesus who came into the world naked and unprotected, not separated from sinners, but from a long line of sinners, Sinless himself, impeccable, surrounded by sinners. People knew. He was called the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He kept sinful company. You know why? It's his only earthly option. Scandal in life and death. The sinless Savior flanked by two thieves on the cross. He died like he arrived. Naked, unprotected. Why would the Lord of the universe expose himself to such hatred and pain? Because this is how he saved sinners. Like you and I. He identified with us. He 
became our friend. He ultimately did the greatest act of friendship. He laid down his life for his friends. Now, your family tree might not be so stellar. We know, humanly speaking, that people miss out on all sorts of things because they weren't born into the right family or they weren't from the right bloodline. In Christ, the bloodline runs only through the precious blood of the Redeemer. We have redemption, we have rejoicing, we have remembering. You know what David's family tree tells us? But it's Jesus' family tree. It tells us God uses ordinary folks, flawed, ordinary folks, to accomplish his glorious plans. Ruth is telling us this is what life looks like lived in fear of God. It's a puzzle piece in God's care for Israel and the nations. It's, Ruth is forming a link in the chain that would bring David into the world and solve the problem of the judges. Israel lacked a king and a future son of David that would bring many more Gentiles into God's people, fulfilling the promise of worldwide blessing that God made to Abraham. The son would be one of renown. They could only imagine at that point. The ancestor of David the king, the line of Ruth and Boaz from which the promised offspring would come, the promised offspring of Genesis 3.15 to crush the serpent and his offspring to bring Gentiles like Ruth under the wings of God. Jesse's greatest legacy was his son David. From him descended the one whom the people in Jerusalem welcomed with Hosanna to the son of David. Uh, the book's final concluding word in Ruth, David. That sounds the trumpet of triumph of God's providence over all the pain of human sin. There is a royal lineage to the messianic king. Nothing was going to stop that train from rolling into town. Yesterday there was a freight train that derailed, many cars derailed in the Potomac River near Harper's Ferry in West Virginia. Nothing could derail Jesus. Nothing. No one. The serpent-crushing sovereign savior of the world would pay for sin, would redeem fallen man, and rule forever. And then enemies of God would be brought near because God killed the son. Planned it from before the world began. Uh, sinful man killed Jesus because God planned it. We are remembering, when we look at David's genealogy, uh, we're remembering uh, thematically how Ruth is, is anticipating another worthy woman, Mary, who bore Jesus. And no surprise that Jesus' genealogy includes Tamar and Rahab and Ruth and Uriah and Judah and Manasseh because it goes all the way to Jesus perfect sinless one. Someone said, without this Moabite girl, Ruth, Christianity would be without its founder, and Israel and the world without its redeemer. But Yahweh is praised in Ruth because he has shown kindness, has said to the living and the dead. He shows his faithfulness to ordinary people to do great things. Oh, they've got a story to tell. Everybody's got a story, right? Ruth and Boaz and Naomi, they all got a story to tell, and so do you. Just this last week, I was eating dinner with a friend who's been a missionary for 30 years. He grew up in Bolivia. He's been a missionary in Mexico in the Middle East. And he's telling a story about being in um, Laredo, Mexico last Christmas, uh, feeding 1,200 prostitutes and drug dealers and others in the community. And he got um, kidnapped by a drug cartel because he was trying to save a woman and her son. He had a gun pointed to his head. They ask him, what are you doing here? And they said, God, he says, God sent me here to, to rescue this lady. I remember as he was telling the story, I remember sitting there thinking, well, when it comes my turn to tell a story, I got nothing like that. What's wrong with me? I, I don't have a, a really dramatic story to tell. And God reminded me something that I, I think God wants me to remind you of today. Don't despise, don't downplay, don't, don't think insignificant the story that God has put into your life, what God is doing in your life, what God has done in your life, what God has brought you through, what God is bringing you through. Don't downplay the work of God in your heart 
as a believer in Jesus. The gospel seeds that you are planting, God can use in huge ways. It can germinate and grow and yield a harvest. What is God bringing you through? What has he brought you through? That's your story. The gospel seeds you're planting in your family, in your workplace, in your schoolroom, in your neighborhood, wherever God puts you around other people. The prayers that you are praying in dependence on God. Don't short sell it. Don't diminish it. Don't downplay it. Don't think it's not worthwhile. If you are living for God's glory and you want to please Jesus and you want to live for the gospel, then God's going to use even the gleanings for really good. Great good. God brings glory from the ordinary. There is a coming king. You must follow him. You must wait for him. You must love him. You must worship him. Ruth is telling us, shouting to us, a child has been born. A king is on the way. But Christmas shouts to us and says, the child was born. The king arrived. Humble Bethlehem on the map for redemption. On a, a humble savior, gentle, lowly, seated on a donkey. Hallelujah, behold our king. You know, Ruth and the Christmas story is a love story between God and us. God chose to love us. He loved us so much that he orchestrated all of history, vectored in on Jesus, all angling towards Christ, the son of righteousness who would come with healing in his wings. If we could just touch the hem of his garment by faith. God did what he said he would do. God kept every promise. He is keeping every promise. The gospel right now is powerful as ever, saving people even today. So don't bury your story. Don't bury your story. God doesn't bury your story. Embrace it. Lean into it. Trust Jesus. Let God use you for glorious gospel purposes. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you that you, you let us celebrate the birth of Christ promised thousands of years before he was born. And then you enable us to abide in his life thousands of years after he died and rose again all the while as we await his promised return. Thank you, Lord, for the truth of Luke 137. Nothing will be impossible with God. Thank you, Lord, that you are restoring a harmonious relationship with humanity, that you are reversing the curse from Eden to the new Jerusalem. You are remaking the whole earth. You are filling it with your chosen holy people, and you are doing it through Christ, the coming King who is on his way, the coming king that we bow before now. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more information about Grace, please visit our website at graceorange.org.